0: Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Past couple months, we've been exploring many of the big questions that are asked in the word of God, and this morning, we will conclude that series. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be Psalm 139 this morning, Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is by far one of the most sublime, exquisite, vivid portraits that we have anywhere of the magnitude of God's strength and His power in our lives. It is a celebration of the God who is fiercely present and a God who fiercely cares. I jump into the text this morning I just want to say that our perception of who God is is going to have a lot to say about how we see this world about how we treat our fellow man how we speak about our fellow man and about how we respond to the trials and adversities of this life in this world and I love so much what we find King David writing in Psalm 139 Because we see King David exemplifying that spiritual peace that ensues within him. When he has an accurate understanding of who God is, when he feels overwhelmed in this world. And yet before we see that happen in the psalm, it begins with him asking a very big question in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirits? Or where shall I flee from your presence. Now a week ago Amanda and I were watching our television and there was an Applebee's commercial that had come on and it had a theme song from Welcome Back Cotter. I don't know if you remember that that old song from that old show but it's a very nice commercial. All that it is is just saying hey we're open again and yet, I don't know why, but in that moment, as I was watching that commercial, where my mind went was, I just sensed how sad this year has been so far. I thought about the 42 million people in our country who are unemployed. About half a million people who COVID-19 has killed so far across the world. I thought about all the killings and all the tragedies that have happened in our country and in other nations. And I also had considered how many of the numbers of new coronavirus infections just keep getting worse and worse and worse. How a lot of the experts are saying that we need to get ready and to brace ourselves for a very grim fall and an even grimmer winter. So with all of this stuff in my heart and in my mind, next thing I knew, an Applebee's commercial And the theme song to Welcome Back Cotter was making me cry the heaviest tears. And that's because I think what it was is that there are circumstances and there are seasons in this life that can inflict an overwhelming sadness within us that will make us feel as if God is a very far away and a distant God who is disinterested in in us leaving us on our own up against the forces of darkness in this world. And as King David writes this psalm, I'm sure that that he remembers many of those seasons of his own life. I'm sure that he reminisced and and he remembered about when when he had all of this sadness and despair at the death of his newborn infants. Where he's so heartbroken that he spends the entire night on the ground feeling so alone and so sad. Perhaps he remembered a time in his life, not, not very long in advance to that, where he had this searing spiritual sadness within him. As it really sunk in for the first time, I am an adulterer. The blood of Uriah, my brother, is calling out to God from the ground, what have I done? Who am I becoming? Maybe he thought about all of those years of his life that he spent on the run from King Saul and later from his own son Absalom, where he was being hunted like a trophy lion, moving from this cave to that cave many years of his life and and how lonely that had to have felt. You see, what we learn in Psalm 139 is that in a world like this, we will plunge to depths of helplessness and to hopelessness. It will make us feel as if we are utterly deserted and alone in this world. And so with all of that in mind, King David, he asked the question, where can I go from the Spirit of God? Where can I flee from God's presence? And that word presence in the original Hebrew language is a very interesting word. It is all of the faces of God. Where can I flee from God's, not just His face, but but really in a plural sense, His faces. We remember how in Genesis chapter 1, God does not say, let me make man in my image. He says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. And now King David is saying, Really the exact same thing in that sense. As he says, where could I even flee away from, from God's many faces? This is God in all of his fullness. And yet as he answers all of these questions, as we have experienced many times over in the series, the answers are surrounding the big questions. What we learn from King David, first of all in this psalm, is that God knows us. God knows us. Psalm 139 begins with these words in verse 1, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my, my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all of my ways. Where even before word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it. And you know it all together. The gods of the nations surrounding Israel were made of wood and bronze and silver. They were lifeless and they had an indifference to the desperation of man. And yet here we have King David saying, here is a God, a living God, a a very intelligent God who knows every single person on the face of this earth. And he doesn't just know every single one of us, but he cares about every single one of us. I mean, notice how how direct his theology is in a personal way where he says, God has searched me, myself. God knows me in that way. In the Hebrew language, it is the imagery where you have a shovel and you are digging into the earth and you're digging deeper and deeper and deeper. What, What King David is saying is so God knows every crevice and every dimension of the human soul. And yes, it is true that God knows all about what is happening in nature and in nations, but but just as much, maybe even more so, God knows you and He knows me. In our text, if we look a little bit later on, verses 13 and 14, He says, For you four my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so I praise you, for I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. God told the young, um, young man, Jeremiah, He says that before I formed you in your mother's womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And yes, it's true that God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and the starry host above. And yet just as much, God also created you and He created me. God knew and God cherished you and me even before there was a cross. Before there was a world, this God who even knows our names. How many times do we see people all throughout the Word of God who are overwhelmed, feeling completely alone in the world? Where they hear God saying their own personal name Abraham, Abraham, do not slay Isaac your son, for a ram has been provided. Jacob, Jacob, do not be afraid. Your son still lives. Moses, Moses, remove the sandals from your feet for the ground on which you are walking is holy ground. Martha, Martha, you are bothered and distracted and worried about so many things. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have been praying for you, Peter that your faith would not fail. And when you have returned to me later on, strengthen your brothers. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And even though you and I cannot literally audibly hear the voice of God calling out to us, you better believe that in His own way, now in the world of today, God is still calling out to us. Denise, Denise. Evelyn, Evelyn. Walter, Walter. David, David, this God of ours knows us by our names. And he knows all, even all of the things that we think, also David says. He knows our inmost desires. He knows everything that we're living for. He knows our every action, where where it says in the text that, that when I sit down, you know it. When I rise up, you are there as well. And so it's the idea of every single mundane activity of every single person does not evade the notice and the care of the living God. And he also knows everything that is troubling us today. For Jesus knows all about our struggles and he will guide us until the day is through. Where before a word is said, David says, before a prayer is uttered to the Holy One of Heaven, Jesus says later on, God already knew every single syllable 3,000 years ago. And the one who can count the stars in the sky and gives names to all of the stars also knows the number of the hairs that are on our heads. You see, our God knows us better than we know ourselves. And I mean, that is a very calming thing, but it is also a very a disturbing thing when we realize that God witnessed, God, God was there seeing our very darkest, most, most hellish act, thought and secret. But the same God who bore witness to all of our very worst is the same God blotting out our sins so He can see us at our absolute best, who looks upon us of all things as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Even in spite of our past. Psalm 139 ends, in verses 23 and 24, as David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. You see, this is the responsibility of, of knowing God is always seeing us. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way within me, and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Or as he prays in yet another psalm, he says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And suddenly all of the things that, that overwhelm us on this earth grow strangely dim when we rest ourselves in the assurance that the living God knows who we are. And yet David also says that it's not just that he knows us, but he can also see us. God sees us. Where he says in verse 5, that you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hands upon me. Now that last phrase, hem me in behind and before, that is military language right there. It's the idea of an army that is closing in on a certain city, laying siege to it. But in this instance, though, it is a metaphorical usage where where that city happens to be us. And whatever it is in this world that is a danger to us, whatever darkness encamps against us, even though we are overwhelmed and we are surrounded by all of that stuff in the world, There is a living God who is surrounding whatever surrounds his people. See, it's not merely that God knows everything that is happening in the White House right now, or Buckingham Palace, or at the Kremlin in Moscow, but God also knows just as much everything that is happening in our homes, in our lives. And if it's true that the eyes of God are fixated on every sparrow of the sky on every robin in the treetops, of every pigeon in Central Park, then how much more must the eyes of God move to and fro the whole earth, looking that He might strongly support those whose hearts are completely and totally His? You see, nothing is concealed from the sight of God. There is nothing that we could ever do that could escape His notice. And I mean, this kind of unlimited access is never to be trusted to ever fall into the hands of man. Um, A few nights ago, I was watching a documentary about Jeffrey Epstein. And what a breathtaking um, testimony of what injustice looks like in the world. Where there was a young woman who was a personal assistant of his who thought she was going on a business trip to the Virgin Islands where she lost her virginity in the most violent and nightmarish way at his hands. And yet earlier on, though, she had stumbled upon a room she didn't even know existed in this house where she sees 20 plus monitors mounted on his wall. And with many chills, she realized that, oh my goodness, this guy has cameras set up in every single room, indoors and outdoors in this house. That is where I take my showers. That's where I change, where I sleep. Literally everything that I did on this trip, she, she had said, he was seeing and he was recording. And yet when God looks upon us and he sees everything that we're doing, it is not at all in that way. But when the eyes of the divine look upon our lives, he's looking on us so that he might strengthen us so that he might fight on our behalf and to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And what David says in verse 6 is, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too lofty and I cannot attain. In other words, it is so astounding that it obliterates the human comprehension. And yet again, all of a sudden, even though it can overwhelm us at times, Suddenly the things of this earth grow strangely dim when we rest ourselves in the assurance that the eyes of the living God are upon us as well as on the sparrow. Lastly, what King David says to us in this song is that not only is God knowing us and not only does he see us, but but so much more, most importantly of all, God is with us. He's with us right now at this very moment in time. Or after he asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Or or where where shall I flee from from your presence and your faces? He says in verse 8 that if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It's just such an incredible thought where he begins and he says that if I ascend to the heaven, and anytime that we find that word heaven in, in Hebrew scripture, it is always literally if, if I ascend to the heaven meaning the starry hosts in the sky, but but really where he's driving at here is go as high up in your mind as you can possibly imagine. And then go as far down as you can possibly imagine into the very remotest part of the sea. I think a modern day way of articulating this would be that if I were to board a shuttle and to ascend to the ceiling of space, even there, not only is God there but God is with me and I am not alone in the world. And if I were to board a submarine and to descend to the floor of the sea, not only is God there somewhere but no, God is there and he's with me and I am not alone in the watery world. And you then notice how King David ventures even lower, even deeper than that where he says the ultimate thing as he says that if I were to make my bed in Sheol. Now there are, are translations which might use the word hell there, if I make my bed in hell. That is not the word that King David uses here though. The Hebrew word Sheol is is contrasted to the word Gehenna, which is used about hell and about the lake of fire. As as King David says, that if I make my bed in Sheol, this is not a place of punishment. But really what it is, is a couple of things. It is, it is a grave, our grave. But it's also that shadowy post-earth existence. It is that unseen realm where all of the spirits go after bodies have died. And they are no longer in that body. What I find to be very interesting about Sheol is that it's it's used roughly 65 times in an Old Testament scripture. And just about every single usage of that word Sheol, it's almost always used in the negative aspects of death. About how death is inescapable. About its finality. About how you can't go back after you have died. How it cuts us off from the land of the living. What is What is he saying here in Psalm 139? He's saying that even in Sheol, God is there. God is able to reach us. God is able to to know where we are and to be right there with us. A New Testament version of this is found in Acts chapter 2 as the Apostle Peter says of Jesus that, that God the Father did not allow God the Son to be abandoned to Hades. And all of us Christians know that the exact same is true about us. God is not going to abandon us to Sheol. See, what this is, is God's power and a superiority over life as well as death. And I think David is, is referring to our grave someday. And yet I think mostly what he's speaking to is when life feels like death to those who live upon the earth. When the grave is a bed that we yearn to lie down upon and to never awake from. And we find this all over scripture. Abraham and Sarah had an Egyptian, um, a servant whose name was Hagar. Well, Sarah is unable to have a child. She, She has a barren womb for a very long time. And so Hagar has Abraham's first child. And as you might imagine, this creates a lot of animosity between Hagar and Sarah. Ultimately, Sarah drives Hagar out into the wilderness, into the desert. And when the water runs out for Hagar and for Ishmael, her son, there's this heartbreaking scene in the book of Genesis where Hagar places Ishmael, her son, her very young son, in the bushes as she knows that we are about to literally thirst to death and yet even there in the middle of a desert where they felt so alone and so deserted God says Hagar what are you doing here and even in that vast desert God was able to to find Hagar and Ishmael and to lift their their souls and hope it's Elijah as he's on the run from Queen Jezebel and he finds himself underneath a juniper tree and later on inside of a cave. And the man who once had prayed so fervently that it literally caused rain to fall from the clouds. this same exact man now is praying just as fervently, maybe even more fervently, God, it is enough in my life because I am no greater than my ancestors. God says, Elijah, what are you doing here underneath this juniper tree? What are you doing praying a prayer like that? You are a son of the Most High. And even underneath that juniper tree, God was able to find Elijah and to lift his soul in hope. I also think about another of the prophets, Jonah. Jonah absolutely hates people who live in Nineveh. They are his embittered enemies of his nation. Well, he goes reluctantly and he preaches, and sure enough, the whole entire city of Nineveh repents. They show Israel what repentance is all about. And yet he despises these people so much. He has so much hatred in his heart for these people. that he says, God, please take my life. Because it is better for me to die than to live and to see these miserable scoundrels, my brothers and my sisters in Yahweh. And yet even with an attitude like that, God says, Jonah, what are you doing here with an attitude like that? God found Jonah in that moment and and he at least gave Jonah the opportunity to have his soul lifted up in hope. It's where I was six years ago next month, where I had a coworker who learned about how my trauma could be triggered in ways that would make me short circuit. And to have anxiety attacks in public places, and I began having those. And it was our main source of income, so I felt trapped and I could not just quit the job. And at the time I couldn't just report it because, well, When I had extreme anxiety, I lost the ability to speak. And I felt so deserted and so hopeless in the world. And the next thing I knew, for four months, I found myself in an extreme episode of clinical depression. Where I was not eating and I could not sleep. And I began imploring God with all of my heart, God, just take me out of here. Take me out. I don't care if you do it through a heart attack, through a stroke, through an aneurysm, through a gunshot wound, whatever it is, just take me out of this world. Or I'm going to maybe have to take matters into my own hands. And yet as dark and as lonely and as hellish as that season was in my life, those four months... What I discovered was the exact same thing that that Hagar and that Elijah and that Jonah and that King David also experienced. Is that in a world like this, it's not a question of if, but it's when. That in a world like this, we will plunge into depths of hopelessness that are going to make us feel deserted and alone in the world. And yet what? He's saying to us in Psalm 139, though, is that even in Sheol, God knows us. God sees us. And God is with us. I'm the minister who sees a lot of theology in the movie The Godfather. It's it's something that is, is rather odd, I understand, but please stick with me. Where there's a scene in in The Godfather, where Vito Corleone has been shot many times. And he's in a hospital room, and his son Michael learns that he has been left all by himself. And his enemies are on their way to come and take him out once and for all. Michael comes to his hospital room, moves him, transports him into another room. And then a very beautiful moment where he looks deeply into his father's eyes and he says, Dad, I'm here now. I'm going to help you. He says, I'm with you now. I'm with you. And there's a very serene and a very tranquil smile that comes upon his father's face as, as he's very calm now in the midst of the storm. And you see, as long as this earth turns, There is no place where God cannot find us and where we cannot find God. We will never escape his care or his notice. What what he's saying to us here in this psalm is that the heavens are not high enough, the underworld is not low enough. And so, what we see is that God is with us past, present, and future. He's here, He's there, and He's everywhere. And I believe so much more when when we feel overwhelmed and alone in the world, God leans in so close to us. He whispers into our souls, I'm here now. I've been here all along and I'm going to help you. I'm going to bless you. I'm here. I'm with you. And all of a sudden, the things of this earth, even though they can overwhelm us and challenge us, grow strangely dim. When we rest ourselves in the assurance that the living God is with us and He's for us. We've seen a lot of big questions in this series, haven't we? And yet the biggest question of them all is a question that the Apostle Paul asks in the book of Romans. Where he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is it going to be tribulation? Is it going to be distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Is it going to be the coronavirus, we would say now? Is it going to be systematic racism in a white supremacist world? Whatever our struggle is in this world, is it going to be that? And the answer resounding from the pen of Paul and from the Spirit of God welling up in him is for I am sure, I am confident that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things with which are to come or powers or height or death or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the New Testament version of Psalm 139. That when the sadness and when all of the panic and and all of the sorrow of this world wells up in us in a devastating way, let us remember that the Psalms are not like 1 Corinthians or Galatians. This is not academic theology. These are Psalms. And Psalms are meant to be prayed when we do not have the words ourselves. Psalms are meant to be chanted to God in the morning and in the nighttime, And so what I want to invite us to this week and in the days ahead is the next time that we feel the the hopelessness of this world rising up inside of us in those moments. Simply pray Psalm 139 out loud to yourself. Listen to your own voice saying those words to God. Start mornings with praying Psalm 139. Maybe close the day just before you go to bed, say Psalm 139 out loud to yourself. And we will be amazed at the spiritual peace that ensues within us. That we will be a people characterized by faith, hope and love in a world of turmoil. So my brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, where shall we go from from God's spirit? Where will we flee from His presence and His face? The answer was in Psalm 139, and the answer will forevermore be that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who defeated the grave, knows us. He sees us. He's with us. And He's not going anywhere.